2: Hello, Old Sports, and welcome to another episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman. I am joined, as always, by my co-host and brother, Andrew Newman. And we are also glad to have with us today a uh, guest author, uh, Mr. J. Daniel, who is the author of Sud Series, Baseball, Beer Wars, and the Summer of 82. Mr. Daniel is an author and he's been in the sports media industry for over 20 years. He's previously the author of Finally, that's finally with a PH, the Phillies, the Royals and the 1980 baseball season that almost wasn't. And he also blogs at www.80sbaseball.com. So that's 80sbaseball.com. And Jay, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. And Andrew how are you this evening?
0: I am doing well Dan. Um you know I'm I'm excited to get going. We've we've done a few of these uh interviews lately but um honestly the topic of this book uh just based on the cover and uh in addition to baseball history I think you and I when it comes to sort of um you know different the evolution of cities in the 20th century and then Obviously, when you throw in the brewery aspect of it to um, the major uh, brewing companies, it's hard to design a book that's more in our wheelhouse or mine specifically. So,
2: And even more so, we did a 1982 episode uh, back in December on the occasion of my 40th birthday. We, we we occasionally do episodes where we look back at sort of an entire year of in sports, and we've done... Nineteen twenty, we've done forty one. Um, we're am um, we've done on one other that eighty six. We did eighty six, and we did nineteen eighty two. Um, and so we touched on some of these matters at a much more surface level than you did in your book, uh, or than we will tonight. But it's definitely something that we've discussed. You know, our our audience would be familiar with. So I guess maybe Jay, if you want to kind of start us off, just tell us a little bit about the book, and maybe specifically, um. What exactly is a Suds series? So my my whole pre- I
3: mean I'm I'm a big like you guys I'm a little older than you guys actually I guess if you just turned 40 I'm depending on your definition a lot older than you. Um but uh you know I'm a I'm a big sports history buff um and and I you know and I, so I did the first book about 1980 um and then the second one about 82 and and I just I love diving into that era. And, and I I posted a tweet a long time ago that basically said the premise of it was, you know, the golden age of sports was whenever you were between the ages of nine and 16 or something to that effect. And, you know, the numbers are a little bit different, but I mean, every you know, sports were pure and great when we were all (laughs) didn't know any better. Um, And so, that was one of the things. So for me, for this for this particular season, you know, I was I was in high school. I remember that season really well. Um I uh I was all I've always been fascinated with that Brewers team um and just how they just bludgeon people to death and hit the crap out of the ball with Harvey Walls. Harvey's wallbangers. And then, you know, the contrast in styles between the two teams is pretty interesting. And and I love that brand of hit the ball in the gaps and play good defense and and run all day long. And I think it's kind of cool that we're starting to see a little bit of that come back um, now. And I'm I'm excited to see that. But but anyway, so that's the premise of why I decided to write the book. And then in terms of the Sud series, that was actually, I wish I had coined that, but that was something that I, you know, that was. Certainly contemporaneous at the time with when when you have Milwaukee and St. Louis, two cities that are very well known for for beer production, um, going head to head in the World Series, and so you know that was something that I don't I don't know who came up with it originally. Yeah, the Sud Series of '82 was was a fun one, and um and and one of the things that I like that I that I enjoyed doing in the book is in addition to talking about the baseball season, talking about the the rivalry between Miller and Budweiser, um and and how that developed and And, uh, and, and, you know, that, that was something that I enjoyed digging into as well. And something that I didn't know a lot about before I wrote the book. So that was fun. And, you know, one
0: on that note, I was just going to say, Dan, when I went to, um, I went to college in Philadelphia, but I had friends and I had three different friends while I was in college one of whom was from the St. Louis area, one of whom was from the Milwaukee area, and then a third friend who was from the Colorado area. So obviously, Coors, you know, prior to the Miller-Coors merger. so It was kind of funny that I just happened to have friends from the three main breweries. And, you know, I guess growing up without a a specific allegiance to a giant beer conglomerate, you don't realize (laughs) just how um, ingrained it is, especially in St. Louis. I've been there, you know, half a dozen times, and it's, it's a company town and that company is Budweiser.
3: So. Yeah, that was really, I mean, I, there were one of the, the best resource books that I read was a book called, um, called bitter brew. I think it was called bitter brew. Um, And it was about the history of Budweiser. And it was really, really interesting. Um, And I tried to find a similar book about the history of Miller and um, couldn't find one. I don't know if it's not, if it's, if there isn't one or if I just couldn't find it, but but that was a big source of of material for me to go back and 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 you know kind of weave that narrative and that that beer thread goes throughout the book and and is something that that helped, I think, kind of tie the narrative together overall throughout the course of the book.
2: I have never talked this much about beer on the podcast. I've I've drank yeah. beer quite often when I've been doing the podcast, but <laughs> haven't talked about it a lot yet. But just so, just sort of there you go, and you got your Budweiser going there. Um, <laughs> I am. Uh, I was actually. Um, and we're really going to digress here. I was. I was up in Cooperstown uh, this weekend at a, uh, a a saber meeting, and so I um I drank a lot of beer while I was up there. So I'm on a little bit of a detox this week. But anyway, that, that's why yeah. I don't have a bottle of can of beer in front of me. But and I promise, audience, we will get to baseball in in just a minute here. But I I think one of the things that was interesting to me, and I think I understood this sort of intellectually but i didn't necessarily have a concept of this this was sort of the beginning days of light beer as a major consumer product and a major player in the industry and i I think you wrote about this a little bit how miller had come out with their light and then um right around this time in in 82 was when bud is sort of um they're developing their own light beer so it's the beginning uh, sort of like the cola wars but for light beer
3: yeah, and that was really—I mean—that was fortunate for me in in trying to develop that narrative. But yeah, so so you're exactly right. Bud Light came out in 1982, in the spring of '82. Um, Miller Light had come out in the and I early '70s, I want to say maybe '73, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, but but Miller Light, Miller was owned by Philip Morris at the time, and one of the things that they they tried to tap into was the fact that when they sold when Philip Morris sold cigarettes, they didn't necessarily sell cigarettes. They sold the men who smoked them. Um, and the, it was the Marlboro man. Right. And so they tried to take that similar approach, but that's a little bit tough to do with light beer with, you know, essentially diet beer, um, especially in the early eighties. And so that's why they, they went out Miller went out and, and recruited all those former athletes. And so they start with, with Bubba, Bubba Smith and Dick Butkus. And and so, if you're a guy that thinks, well, OK, you know, light diet beer, that's that's not very manly. Well, if, if Dick Butkus and Bubba Smith drank it, then it's good enough for you. Um, and so that really took off. And and what Budweiser saw, they didn't want to do a light beer, but they saw that Miller was really, really starting to eat into their market share. And that was what prompted um, Anheuser-Busch to say, all right, maybe we need to come out with a light beer, too. And so they launched it in the spring of 82 um, and that really for Budweiser was always number one in in this country for, you know, during that period. But Miller was really starting to close the gap. And once Budweiser um, came out with Bud Light, that started to uh, widen that gap again back to a place where, where Anheuser-Busch was more comfortable with it, shall we say.
2: So maybe we should move to the baseball a little bit there. Um... And you you didn't you didn't you, you didn't focus exclusively on the Cardinals and the Brewers. You you looked really at every team, which I thought was was really cool and kind of learning all of these different things. So I guess sort of a vague question, um, but I guess sort of top level, give the audience an idea of sort of what's going on in baseball in eighty two and who, who maybe who some of the major contenders are because it's a really interesting time period. This early eighties, you basically have a, two different teams going to the world series every year.
3: Yeah. I mean, if you go back and look at baseball history, there has not been a decade that had the parody that the eighties did. Um, most of most in most decades, you've got, I mean, even just go back one decade to the seventies, right? With between the reds and the a's they won and the pirates won seven of the 10 world series. And, and um, in our
2: Yankees for two more.
3: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So and and you know, and obviously you go back further than that, the sixties and the fifties, and and the Yankees are completely dominant. And so the eighties, the Dodgers were the only team to repeat. Um, and and in in addition to that, you also just had a number of different teams even make the World Series. So um 82 specifically, I think was really interesting because as I talked about and you touched on with my first book, the strike of nineteen eighty one actually should have so to speak, taking place in 1980. Um, and basically what happened is they agreed on everything except for free agent compensation, formed a committee, um, and kicked that can down the road. And they came, that came to a head in 81. And that's when, um, and that's when the strike of 81 came. So everybody knew that in 1979. So heading into 1980, That was on the horizon. And then obviously in 81, that was an issue. So 82 was the first season where all of a sudden there was a collective bargaining agreement that everybody knew was going to be in place for a decent amount of time. So that allowed teams and general managers to really say, "Okay, now we can go and focus on what we want our team to look like for the next couple of years because we know what the financial ramifications are going to be. We know what it's going to look like. And so. You know, the biggest I I mean, I've said in in previous podcasts and actually wrote a blog about this, that in my opinion, the biggest the most important day of the 1982 season was I think it was June 7th of 1980 when the Cardinals fired Ken Boyer and, and brought in Whitey Herzog because Herzog completely remade the Cardinals team and in the process completely remade the Milwaukee Brewers. He traded the Brewers the next two A.L. Cy Young Award winners and then beat the Brewers in the World Series. And and in addition, he also, quote unquote, threw in a Hall of Famer in that deal and still beat them. So, I mean, it was it was a, a pretty, a pretty amazing time with a lot of player movement. I mean, I think I don't remember exa- the exact number, but I think Herzog made something like 65 player moves from the time he took over the team in 1980 until opening day of 82. Um, just completely redid that roster.
2: And what you're referring to there is that Herzog in the off season of 1980 traded Raleigh Fingers, who had been a hall of famer with the. With or I'm sorry, had been an, an all star and an, an MVP or I think it was MVP or Cy Young, he'd been an award winning pitcher with the A's in the early seventies, as well as Ted Simmons, the catcher who just uh, just recently got into the hall of fame a couple of years ago. And then also uh, Pete Vukovich, who's got a little bit of an interesting story Um in his own right that maybe we'll get into in a little bit and i in reading this i i did not realize uh and i guess it's because he never actually suited up for them raleigh fingers with the cardinals he never actually played he just was how did that all work with how did he end up on the cardinal roster after the 80 season so that he could get traded to the brewers
3: it was a winter meetings kind of thing raleigh fingers was a member of the cardinals for like five days In the same way, if you'll remember, Raleigh Fingers was a member of the Boston Red Sox for a couple days in the 70s, but never actually suited up for them either because Charlie Finley sold him and Joe Rudy Mm -hmm. to the Red Sox. And there's photographs out there of Raleigh Fingers wearing a Red Sox uniform, but he never played for them. So yeah, so I mean, Fingers came in. I mean, I'm sorry, Herzog came into the winter meetings, traded for Raleigh Fingers, sent um, uh, Terry Kennedy and a couple other people to San Diego, got Raleigh Fingers, but he had always coveted Bruce Sutter. And so he went out and signed Bruce Sutter or traded for Bruce Sutter. I can't now I should know this cuz I wrote the book, but he acquired Bruce Sutter, let's let's put it that way. And then realized and then of course knew well I I don't need both of these guys and Fingers is obviously a huge trade chip and so he approached Harry Dalton, the Brewers general manager at the winter meetings in 1980 and said, "Hey, how'd you like to win the pennant next year?" and traded him Fingers and Vukovich and Simmons um and got uh, David Green in return and um in a, a package that was highlighted by David Green, who was at that point supposed to be the next big thing. And unfortunately for him and the Cardinals, that didn't pan out. But again, that speaks to you know to Whitey that you can trade two Hall of Famers and a Cy Young Award winner. The guy you get as the main piece in return doesn't pan out, and you still go go to the three World Series in the next five years. So just I figure for completeness' sake,
0: I'll I'll run down the full trade here. Seven players total changing teams. The Brewers end up with Raleigh Fingers, Pete Bukovich, Ted Simmons in exchange to Milwaukee for David Green, Sixto Lizcano, Dave Lapointe, and Larry Sorensen. So that's the official trade.
3: Yeah, and then they f- ended up flipping Sorensen to Cleveland, I think, um, in eighty one.
2: So. so they're- there's a book, and I don't remember who the um who the author is. So maybe I'll put it in the show notes. But there's actually a book on this Cardinal team called "Whitey Herzog Builds a Winner," and yep. he really was—he was the genius behind not only the on-field part of it, the managing, but you know, he put the team together too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he, it, and and it's interesting when you look back at it because he, you know, he had he had had a lot of success in, in Kansas City got fired when they finished in second place. And he you know, was in, confident enough in his position in 1980 where he said, I'm going to sit out until the right job comes along. And it did. And he completely rebuilt the Cardinals, as I said before, but built that team around that ballpark in a very, very similar fashion to what he had done in Kansas City. And the very first guy that he went out and got was Darrell Porter, who was his catcher in Kansas City. And he, you know, and he loved Daryl Porter and loved the way he, his leadership abilities, his ability to call a game. And Ted Simmons was an extremely popular player in St. Louis. And when he traded Ted Simmons, that did not go over well at all in St. Louis. I mean, Whitey has said in his book, you would have thought that I traded the the arch, I think was, you know, (laughs) was what he said to You know, and so that that was not a popular move at all. And, you know, but trust the process. Right. And it worked out, obviously, for Whitey. He's a smart, obviously was a smart baseball guy.
2: And like you said, they're sort of the polar opposite of the Brewers. I think the Cardinals hit something like 67 home runs all year. And this was a world championship team that only had 67 home runs as a team for the whole year. And I don't know what the exact number was for the Brewers, but they were. They were up there. I, I, they might have led the league or led the majors, or they were close. And they got the they nickname. Did. They got the nickname "Harvey's Wall Bangers" because they were constantly hitting these balls off the wall, over the wall, led by you know Hall of Famers Molitor, Yount, Cecil Cooper. So they're like sort of like almost the the polar opposite of what the Cardinals are.
3: They were exactly the opposite. The Brewers hit 216 home runs, and the Cardinals hit 67. The Cardinals had two guys in double figures, and and Daryl Porter and George Hendrick, and the Brewers had one, two, three, four, five guys that hit at least twenty homers. So it was it was a, to your point a cap- a complete contrast in styles. But the Cardinals ran. I mean, and the, you know they hit the balls in the gap, hit balls in the gap, and they played defense and. You know when you've got Vince Coleman. I'm sorry, Vince Coleman was 85. When you've got when you've got Ozzie Smith and Lonnie Smith and Tommy Her and and those guys at the top of the order. Willie McGee they, and Willie McGee, right? Who who's another guy that Whitey stole? Thank you. That's who I was thinking of. That you know they just ran and and they put so much pressure on the, on the opposing defense. And that's that's the part of the game that I missed. That I think we're starting to see. You know and again one of the things that we haven't touched on yet is, is of course 82 was also the year that Ricky stole 130 bases mm-hmm. and so you know when Ricky gets on it's you know it could be a triple in two pitches he could walk and 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 be on third in two pitches and so that's the kind of pressure that that those cardinals teams and and obviously a lot of teams in in the early 80s in the mid eighties put on the opposing defenses. And I, and in my opinion, it was a, it was a fun, a more fun brand of baseball to watch than sitting back and waiting for somebody to hit the ball 450
2: feet.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, and I, you know, I said for the last however many 10 years or whatever it was, like, I understand the theory behind it. And, you know, I under, I understand that the percentages and and whatever, say stealing a base might not be worth it, but, we can all agree that the game is more exciting, whether it's smart baseball or not, when it's not just walk, home run, strikeout, and what I like, and what the you know not to talk too much about modern times because I think that's against the rules on our network. Um, is Fair, I, I get it. I like. I know. I'm just kidding. Obviously, I like okay. that um, they're making it so that it is smart baseball again to do those things. Um, I have to talk about since you mentioned Ricky Henderson. I have to talk about this. Ask you to talk about this whole thing with um it's on page one fifty-six of your book, the whole thing with him trying to steal, or the the guy in front of him trying to get picked off, and yeah, the other team to pick him off. And I'll be honest, I had never heard any of that, and I was blown away that that happened and I didn't know about us.
3: Yeah. So basically what happened was Ricky was close to breaking the record and he needed to have a big day. I think he needed to steal four bases that day, maybe three. And um, and it was the last day of the homestand. And so the A's wanted him to, to break the record at home. And so what happened was basically Ricky Ricky came up. He was due to hit second in, in his what was probably going to be his last step out of the game. And Mike, St- Fred Stanley, Mike Stanley, Mike Stanley got on base ahead of him and Stanley had like 30 some bases and stolen bases in his career. Like he was, that was not his deal. Right. And or, and Ricky needed to steal second and third in order to, uh, to, to break the record at home. And so what Billy Martin did was tell Stanley just to get hung out and get picked off. And, and so, so that would free the base pass for Ricky and, Sparky Anderson they were playing Detroit Sparky Anderson was was onto it and so he yelled at his team so Stanley was hanging out there trying to get picked off and they threw over and Sparky's yelling at his guys just don't don't tag him and so there's this bizarre moment where Stanley is basically just hung up in between second and third base um kind of not doing anything waiting for somebody to come over and tag him out and the Tigers are throwing the ball around the infield and finally someone comes over and tags Stanley out and so that allows that frees up second base for Ricky. So then he steals second slides in safely. Um, and the umpire at the time was Durwood Merrill who called Ricky out because he knew what was going on and uh, didn't want Ricky to break the record that way. And Sparky w- went ballistic after the game and just said, you know, this is a travesty and you know, the game can't, can't do that. You can't do that stuff and you have to respect the game. And, I think to a certain point, I, I certainly uh, agree with Sparky. And it, the other point he made was, you know, if you can steal that many bases, you can break the record, honestly. And it wasn't like this wasn't the last game of the season either. I mean, it was in September, but it was still, they still had plenty of time. But again, they just wanted him to break it at home. So he ends up going to Milwaukee and stealing, the stealing um, breaking the record in Milwaukee. But yeah, it was kind of an, an interesting and fun story that, that, uh, that I read about and Ricky talked about that in his first book. Um, in his second book that just came out, the the one that he did with Howard Bryant, um, is mm-hmm. is outstanding too for fans yeah. of that era. I would yeah. highly recommend it.
2: Yeah, I, I have it. I've not read it yet. Um, but I was actually just about to reference it. the The whole relationship between Martin and Henderson is kind of a story unto itself because, and I think Andrew, I've talked about this before, and Jay, you know this as well. Martin sort of starts off kind of hesitant to give Ricky this green light. And then at some point, Billy Martin realizes that Ricky Henderson's got a shot. And so all of a sudden, Ricky Henderson becomes his favorite player. And he basically says, I'm going to get Ricky to break this record come hell or high water. And I think the story that you two were both were each discussing a minute ago, probably is proof of that. The sort of interesting coda to that story is three years later when Ricky's on the Yankees by this point, and Yogi Berra is managing the Yankees. And this is the famous, you know, Steinbrenner fires Yogi Berra two weeks into the season, and Berra gets angry, vows never to go back, blah, blah, blah. The whole clubhouse, the entire Yankee team is ticked off beyond belief. You know, the Mattingleys, the Guidrys, the Winfields, none of them want to see Yogi Berra go and play for Billy Martin. The only guy who's happy about it is Ricky Henderson because Henderson had played for Martin in Oakland and loved him, so that that's sort of a long interesting um relationship between those two as um as the eighties progress, I guess you could say so th- there's just there's so many different places we could take this because like I said, you really sort of you mention and and talk about every team. One of the ones that I was really fascinated by was what was going on with the California Angels, because this was uh Reggie Jackson's first year with the Angels after five years in New York. They've got a an aging Rod Carew, another Hall of Famer, and they're they're a team that, that's not without drama. And you have a, a quote in here from from Don Baylor, who's another guy who's if you look at Don Baylor's 80s career, the guy just played on so many interesting and good teams throughout his career, especially In the 80s, we got a quote here from Don Baylor, who said the Angels had a lot of millionaires and egos to match the dollars. You couldn't take a swing without hitting an MVP, batting champ or home run king. There were personality clashes. I can't count how many of them revolved around Reggie. And I can't count the number of times I wound up in the middle trying to keep everybody from killing each other. What's going on with the Angels in 1982 when other than trying not to kill each other?
3: Yeah, well, to your point, I mean, they had a lot of talent on that team. There are four former MVPs on that ball club between Reggie, Baylor, Freddie Lynn, and... um, Carew, right? Oh, and Rod Carew, right, yeah. So, um, I mean, it and there's a one, my favorite story, and I, I didn't do a lot of interviews for this book, and that was actually on purpose because I thought if I started to chase interviews, I would never stop. And I ended up talking to Doug DeSensei and to speak directly to that point, DeSensei told me a story about how one night Reggie and Bobby Gritch went out, um, you know, just on the town. They were both single and they ended up both vying for the affection of the same woman. And she ended up going home with Bobby Gritch that night. And the next day in the clubhouse. Reggie is all over Bobby Gritch. He's just giving him all kinds of crap and nobody can figure out why. And of course, the only person who knows what it's about is Bobby Gritch and they end up, you know, getting into it a little bit. And, and, and as you said, Don Baylor is the one who steps up and, and kind of settles things down and basically tells Reggie to back off. Um, There's more to the story, you know, in the book, but I mean, that was, that was one of the great stories that, that, um, that Desensei told me, but, but then the other thing with that team was, you know, they 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 thought their pitching wasn't going to be that good and then their starting pitching ended up being great, but then what cost them in the end was according to a lot of people Doug DeSense included decisions that Gene Mock made in the ALCS that really um kind of scuttled their season um in game 5 of the ALCS and 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 Doug kind of pulled no punches um when I talked to him about that. He was not at all pleased, even Later, I mean, Doug DeSensei was on that nineteen seventy nine Pirates team that blew a three to one lead. I am um, sorry, that Orioles team that blew a three to one lead in the Pirate against the Pirates in seventy nine, and he told me that the eighty two playoff loss was more devastating than the seventy nine World Series loss. So that, to me, spoke wow. volumes. And one of the things he was most upset about was that he, you know, that was he, you know, that was the chance that Rod Carew had to go to the World Series, and they blew it. Um, they were up two zero and they blew it, and Rod Carew never got to the World Series.
2: And Gene Mock is sort of known historically, for those who don't know, as perhaps the most, um, I don't know, I guess you'd call him the most collapsing manager of all time. Um, in addition to what happens in the ALCS in 82, four years later, he's managing the Angels, a lot of the same players, and that's the team that loses to the Red Sox and the ALCS after being... Up 3-1 uh to Boston, and that's the whole uh Dave Henderson hits a home run off of Donnie Moore, that whole tragic story. And then also a generation earlier, he's the manager of that 64 Philly team that blows a huge lead in the National League pennant race to the Cardinals in September of 64. So a lot of um a lot of managerial uh breakdowns and collapses in the career of Gene Mock
3: yeah and and it's a shame really i mean you know he was a he was a really smart baseball guy but he obviously had trouble handling pitching staffs and um and and you know i talked about that in the book a little bit with this particular series about how you know he ended up throwing tommy john on short rest and in that series and tommy john didn't pitch well and and, and the way, you know, he had some reasons for why he did it, but the way it came out, it looked like it was a panic move. And yeah, it was, it's, I mean, it's a shame because the guy knew his stuff, um, but just couldn't handle pitching staffs for whatever reason. And it, and it came back to bite him famously three times, especially, I mean, 64 was, was awful um, with that collapse of that Philly team and you know, people in Philadelphia are still upset about that. But, <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was it was a rough go for him.
0: Since you mentioned Tommy John, I feel like now would be a good time to uh, just briefly talk about uh, my brother and I's favorite team, which is the Yankees. And this is really they obviously won the pennant in 81. And look, I'm, it was a circus from the second George Steinbrenner took over. But at least through 81, they were winning pennants in World Series. Starting in 82 is really the. Chaos with no upside era that really lasts until Steinbrenner is suspended in the early nineties, where they're just cycling through managers, not getting to the postseason, and and this was a year where the circus aspect of it really overtook it. And Tommy John is a is a character in that because they couldn't resist uh waging a war with another former player or current player in the
3: newspapers. Yeah, the, I mean, to your point, 82 was the beginning of the of the Yankees' demise. I mean, and much to the chagrin of Yankee fans and Don Mattingly, who, um, you know, I mean, he was the guy who uh, he came up a little bit after that and was, you know, had this tremendous season in 84, but never ended up playing in the postseason. And so, I mean, 82, George decided he was going to let Reggie go and they were going to focus on speed. And so he went out and got Ken Griffey and Dave Collins and they were going to be the go-go Yankees and they were going to run all over everybody like the Cardinals were And it took them until um, May um, (laughs) to go trade for John Mayberry. And that was the end of the go-go Yankees. Um, And by that time, of course, they had already fired Bob Lemon, replaced him with Gene Michael, who had been fired in the previous September because Michael had criticized Steinbrenner. So the Yankees actually had three managers because Michael didn't even last the rest of the 82 season. So Clyde King took over as well. So the Yankees had three managers in 82 um, had just an abysmal season. One of my favorite stories from the book was how it was a the Yankees had a had an off day and then a travel day where they were going cross country early in the season, and they they lost a game, and George was upset and ordered a full team workout on the off day, and everybody came in, and but obviously none of the players were happy, and Oscar Gamble said Ernie Banks is the only guy that would be happy to be here today. <laughs> um, and so, um, I, I mean, to your point, I mean, I know uh, George Steimer is a very polarizing figure, and and he did a lot of good, um, but man, he was a maniac and just drove people crazy. And and I think, to you know, I mean, you said it earlier, you know, he just created chaos oftentimes where there wasn't any. And and to get to the Tommy John point, Tommy John, you know, was was on that. At, on the Yankees with and at the beginning of 82 didn't pitch well and then ran a foul of Steinbrenner said that he wanted out and ended up getting traded to the angels. And there's a lot more to that in the story as well. I mean, there was something to do with, with, with Tommy's son Travis and the, mm-hmm. a terrible situation that happened with him where he had a horrible accident and the Yankees let kind of let him travel back. Tommy John travel back and forth so he could spend more time with his son in 81 And then Tommy John felt like the Yankees held that over his head when he wasn't pitching well in 82. And, you know, that's not a way to build a good relationship with players. And Tommy wanted out and ultimately got out and then came back. So.
2: And when you say son, just to be clear for anybody who's listening, this is not a 17 year old who had a car crash. This is like a three-year-old who fell off a balcony. So this was a very, very, unusual and tragic situation that and you're right steinbrenner kind of steinbrenner had an ability to be a really good guy in the moment but then as time went on kind of like the thing that you also talk about um or no that maybe this isn't in your book but kind of like the thing with with dave winfield where he he says he's going to donate all this money to dave winfield's charity and then stops doing it and i think the point about steinbrenner and the yankees at that time when I was sort of first starting to learn about baseball history uh, and the Yankees, you know, when I was a teenager, the two guys you think about as Yankee managers during that time period are Billy Martin and Bob Lemon, because they are the ones who brought the Yankees to the World Series. Martin in 77 and then Lemon in 78 and 81. What you don't realize maybe or some people don't think about is that it's so much crazier. They had a 100 win season under Dick Houser. In Dick Houser's only year as the manager, and then Dick Hauser gets fired after the 80 season. They have a great first half of the year under Gene Michael in 81, who they then fire and bring in Bob Lemon. And like you said, flip it on its head uh, a year later, and they bring Gene Michael back. So it's just it's such a circus. And there's a quote from the book um, from Billy Martin where he says, Because Billy Martin managing in Oakland by this time, he says, I'm glad I'm over here and not over there. That's the kind of stuff and he's just talking about the general Yankee daily drama. He says, that's the kind of stuff that can wear anyone out. And who knows it better than me? And I wrote a little notation in my book that said, yet he goes back three more times. But even (laughs) so, it's, it's just so crazy on the Yankees at that point.
3: Yeah, it was really insane. And you talked about Dick Hauser, and that was a really interesting story that I, you know, kind of delved into in my first book. Right. They they hire Hauser in seventy-nine out of Florida State, who he was this legendary college manager. He comes to the Yankees in nineteen eighty, takes them to the playoffs, where they end up losing. And there was a time at and I don't remember, I think it was during the it was during the regular season where Steinbrenner says, well our manager's new and he'll learn and I'm, i remember reading that quote when i was doing the research for the book and saying dude you've owned the team for 7 years at this point and mm-hmm. dick Houser is a baseball lifer and you're saying well he's new he's going to learn and then he ended up what happened was that the you know in the in the ALCS in 1980 the the first third base coach sent a runner home he got thrown out and george wanted him fired on the spot and Hauser ended up standing up for him, but then when the end of the season was over, Steinbrenner wanted him to fire Mike Ferraro, and and um, and Hauser said no, and so Steinbrenner fired Hauser, and <laughs> and Howard Hauser, to his to his credit, knew, you know, like Herzog that we talked about earlier, I'll be fine, I'll get another job, but I'm not going to work for this guy, um, and as it turned out, you know, Hauser does end up getting another job, and then tragically contracts brain cancer and Ferraro ended up managing as well. He managed the Yankees or the uh, Indians, I should say. So mm-hmm. um, meanwhile, George is just to your point, cycling through managers. I mean, it, it was almost a yearly occurrence that the Yankees would fire their manager at least once.
2: Yeah. And it didn't really end until, uh, until the nineties with, with Shel Walter and then Tori um, another interesting story that I'd love to hear you talk about. Uh, and this is the story that I was not aware of the Texas Rangers fired John Zimmer. But then make him manage two more games.
3: Yeah, that was a crazy story. So I mean, the the, the Rangers were an absolute disaster in '82. Um, they, you know, and and so there was a part a point in this. Well, it started in in spring training where they ended up trading Walt Terrell and Ron Darling, who was their first round pick the year before, to the Mets for Lee Mazzilli. And and Zimmer said in one of his books, you know, I didn't want to vouch for this trade because. I'm a, I was an American League guy, and I had really not seen Mazzilli play. And he also had he hadn't seen um, Darling pitch, but they ended up making that move, and it turned out to be an absolute disaster. Mazzilli comes to Texas and, and has and does not do well, and and ends up rubbing a lot of people the wrong way too. When he's they tell him he's going to play left field, and he said that left field was an idiot's position. Um, so the Rangers have this terrible start, and then they end up calling Zimmer in at one point to the office, and they say, and Zimmer thinks for sure he's going to get fired. And instead of firing him, they tell Zimmer that he's that the, the general manager has been fired and that Zimmer is now the interim GM. And he and nothing's gonna happen unless Zimmer says it's gonna happen. And so he's saying, Well, that's weird, but okay. And then a month later he gets fired, but they fire him on a Monday and they want him to manage the next two games. But then the story leaks out. And so he goes to the to hand in the lineup card on Wednesday and gets a standing ovation because everybody in the ballpark knows that he's already been fired. Um, But he's just there to manage. And my favorite part of that story was that they were going to have a news conference on Thursday. And Zimmer said, I'm not coming in on a news conference on Thursday because I have a tea time and I'm not going to miss my tea time. To come into a press conference to say to announce that I've been fired. If you're going to do it, do it on Wednesday. Well, then they ended up not even telling Zimmer where the news conference was. So after the game is over, he's sitting in his in his office, and someone says, "Hey, you're late for the news conference." He's like, "Well, no one told me when or where it was." So it was just a crazy situation. Eddie Childs was was sort of Steinbrenner light, and, and um, in the sense of how kind of crazy he was as a manager or the owner of the Rangers. And I mean um, cycled through manager cycled through a lot of players and just didn't know what he was doing. It was an absolute disaster that Rangers, I mean, the Rangers were just an abyss. I mean, playing in that ballpark when it's 150 degrees every single night in front of nobody um, and losing, you know, 90 games every year, um, but still managing to spend a decent amount of money on, on talented players that, but they could never get any pitching. And it was, they were a disaster. So it was, it was interesting. I mean, sometimes it's fun to look back at teams that were just woefully bad and try and sort of dissect it and figure out what went wrong, and and how bad historically were they. And and I mean, another example of that is the Twins in '82 as well. And they move into the Metrodome and then immediately get their brand new stadium and then immediately start trading all their players. And ultimately, kind of worked out for them in the long run, but at the time, it did not go over well. I was going to say we should. You- I'm assuming we'll want to get towards the end of the season and the
0: postseason in a minute, but um, a team that doesn't factor into the postseason, but is in it right till the end is the Baltimore Orioles. And this is an interesting year because it's at least what was understood at the time to be Earl Weaver's last year. It's Cal Ripken's first full season, I believe he makes the transition over to shortstop. So, you know, obviously they would go on to win the World Series the next year, but that was unbeknownst to them at the time. And it's kind of a transition period from the seventies, you know, the 79 team we mentioned earlier into this team that would be led by Cal Ripken going forward into the eighties.
3: Yeah. And, and, and yeah, that's, that actually is a really big story of that, that 82 Orioles team that, um, you know, a lot of talent on that team. You've got Ripken and Murray and Palmer, Mike Flanagan. Well, Dennis Martinez was still there. I mean, they had a lot of, McGregor is who I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so they have multiple Cy Young award winners. Um and and started off really slowly and then came on on fire, and they end up going into the final weekend of the season. The Brewers have a three-game lead with four to go. Or was it or no? It was a yeah, it was a three-game lead with four games to go. Or no, it was a four-game lead heading into the last game of the season. And and the Brewers end up losing the first three games to tie it up, and so they go to the to the uh final game of the season and it becomes a winner take all when all the brewers had to do was win one of the, f- the four games that weekend to win the pennant um, or to win the division milwaukee ends up winning it on a, a sunday afternoon the final game of the year and what made it i think a little bit more special was the fact that the nfl was on strike at the time
2: that's right So this
3: is a sunday afternoon you know one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and baseball is on nationwide on ABC with Keith Jackson doing the game. And and it became this big thing where everybody watched that game. I mean, it was the winner take all with Jim Palmer against Don Sutton, two future Hall of Famers going head to head in that final game of the season. And then at the end, you know, the Brewers end up winning the game and it's Weaver's last game, but it's the games in Baltimore. And so Weaver has this curtain call at the end of the game and the game is a bit, the whole series is available on YouTube can go back and watch them. And it it is really interesting to go back and watch those old games from a lot of different perspectives. Um, You know, just how guys pitched, how guys hit, where guys stood, you know, how skinny all those guys were (laughs) compared to guys today. You know, I mean, it really is amazing, but I mean, that was something that I really kind of did a deep dive of that last weekend of the season of the season um, to talk about all the things that happened and because the other thing that was going back and forth at the same time was the fact that the, the Giants had been eliminated um, that same weekend, but they were playing the Dodgers and the Dodgers still had a chance. The defending world champion Dodgers still had a chance to to make to win the, the AL West or the NL West, I should say. Um, and then Joe Morgan ends up hitting a three-run homer in the late innings to knock the Giants to knock the Dodgers out. Um, and the Braves end up, after their 13-0 start, end up kind of backing in um, to win their, their division. So there was a lot going on that weekend. And, um, and, and I mean, one of the things I love to do is, is really, you know, we all, a lot of, uh, we watch my wife and I watch a lot of thrillers on Netflix and those, one of the things that I, that I sometimes see a, a series described as, as a, as a slow burn. And I love <laughs> to, to kind of really dive in and, and stretch those stories out and try to pull as many threads as I possibly can to, to stretch it out because, I mean, at the end of the day, no one's going to read a book about 1982 because they want to find out who won the World Series. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, you know, so I have to in books like this with the book about 1980 and 1982, you have to tell stories that people haven't heard, probably. Um, and I'm sure there are lots of stories where, that, that people have heard, but I don't know that there's, you know, everyone's going to read this book and pull something out. But to say, wow, I didn't know that. And, you know, I mean, and that's that's the goal for me is I love to just dig into all this stuff and find these little unearth these little stories and weave it all into a narrative. And then, you know, kind of at the end of the day, say, OK, here's the finished product and and let's walk back through and go through this season and this summer and and relive it. And I also like to talk about, you know, you know, what else was going on in the country at the time? And one of the things, you know, so I talk about pop culture stuff and I talk about, you know, that was the year that Pac-Man came out for Atari, which was a huge, huge deal. And Fast Times Richmond High came out in 1982. And um, so I had some fun with that as well. And there's a little Easter egg in the book um, for f- fans of Fast Times. I won't spoil it, but uh, if you you could maybe figure it out. I don't know if you guys saw it or not, but uh, that was something that I that I enjoyed doing. So I love to to delve into it and say, look, this was 82, man. We all you know, a lot of us lived through it and. And and if you didn't live through it, I think hopefully you come away with it saying, you know, I learned some stuff and and these were good stories and it was a fun read.
2: Well, I was born in December of 82, so I literally did not live through it. But um, (laughs) it was a really, really interesting story. And um, honestly, I've not seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but reading your book made me want to see it. So I plan to see it really quickly. It holds
3: up fairly well. Mm -hmm. A lot of those movies don't, but that one does.
2: Well, and I've never seen Sean Penn in that type of a role. So I'm looking yeah. forward to something a little <laughs> different. Um before we get to the postseason, you mentioned Pac-Man. Um some players get hurt playing Pac-Man, or at least it's rumored that they do.
3: Yeah, yeah. Raleigh Fing. I mean so Pac-Man came to the States in the the end of nineteen eighty, the arcade games. Um and just became this phenomenon. And some teams had them in their clubhouses and Raleigh fingers actually ended up, wasn't really an injury, more of an irritation, but he played so much Pac-Man that his elbow started to bother him and he had to step off and stop playing. And then later in the season, there was a, there was a, a, an instant where Pete Vukovic was playing in the clubhouse. And depending on who you hear, depending on which story you believe, um, He uh, had a a Pac-Man machine or something fall on him. But one of the stories that I read was that he got so upset that he had lost that he kicked a machine and ended up hurting his ankle. And um, and then the the Brewers put out a story that he was walking to the ballpark and and slipped while walking down a hill and rolled his ankle and he couldn't start the next day. And so they ended up running Jerry Augustine out there and in a brutal take one for the team kind of day where he gave up, I think 10 or 11 runs and three and a third, something like that. And, um and it was just this horrible situation for Augustine, but kind of the players knew what was going on. And one of those situations where, man, you know, we can't use up our bully. So you're going to be out there and su- sucks for you. um So mm-hmm. it was a, it was a, an interesting one. of the again, another fun story that I stumbled across.
2: So, so in the time that we have left here, why don't we uh why don't we talk a little bit about um about that postseason and particularly about that World Series because it's a classic postseason. the ALCS especially, we talked a little bit about the Angels blowing the 2-0 lead to Milwaukee in what was still then a five game series. And then um you got uh the Cardinals really coming from behind uh both in games, they're down three two, and then also in game seven itself. They're down three one late in the game and coming back to win um their first World Series in uh, in about fifteen years. Yeah that that
3: that it was it was funny because I'm i I did some starting to do some research potentially for the next book and I I read a quote from '83 from Whitey Herzog that said you know hey we you know we out homer the Brewers the mighty Brewers in the World Series and he said you know that's why Gussie Bush loves me is because. Um, you know, everybody went, during 7 games of the World Series got to see the Clyde sales out there and and uh they they sold a lot of beer and uh and we won the World Series. So, um <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the Cardinals were you know, it, one of the big things that I that I saw was that if you go back and look at those games, the Cardinals lost game 1 10 to nothing. And um Paul Molitor and, and Robin Yount both had huge days and Ozzy Smith said that The scouting reports told them that they needed to play the Brewers back because they hit the ball so hard, and then it turned out that the Brewers ended up—I think they had five or six infield hits in Game One—and they kind of decided the Cardinals kind of decided as a group, "Well, screw this. We're going to play where we normally play," and all of a sudden they started to chop off those infield hits. Um, And so, but yeah, it was it was a back and forth series. Um, You know, Cardinals win Game Two. and Game Three, but then the Brewers win Game Four and Five, and the Cardinals trounce the Brewers in Game Six. So then you come down to Game Seven, and and you know all of a sudden the Cardinals are down late in the game, um, and they've got Joaquin. It was Joaquin Andohar against Pete Vukovich, who by this point is pitching with a torn rotator cuff, um, and and Andohar had been hit by a ball, a, a line drive up the middle, or a you know ground, hard ground ball up the middle. So there was some doubt as to whether he'd even be able to go. So kind of really gutsy performances by both pitchers in game seven. Um, and then the big blow comes from Keith Hernandez on his birthday where he ends up, um, you know, driving in the winning runs off of a guy that he was a was a former little leaguer that he played uh, with when he was a kid in California. So um, it was a really it was. I mean, again, all those games are available on YouTube, and if you have any interest at all, I would highly recommend go back and watching them because it was it was a fun era, and it was just a lot of. It was real. It's really interesting to go back and watch those games, listen to the commentary, and how because be, you know at that point Weaver and Palmer are both in the booth um, for that World Series, and so they're going back and forth. You know, um, and it's, it's 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 you know. It's a it's really, really interesting with the hindsight of um, history to go back and watch those games.
0: I didn't realize that for 10 years, the D.H. just rotate. I, I assumed the rule. I knew the first couple of years there was no D.H., but I just assumed after that it was the um, the rule that it was for years where it depended on who was the home team. I didn't realize that for a 10 year period, it was just like. Either every game had the DH or no games had the DH.
3: Yeah, it just and alternated it, year by year. One year there was one, and one year the next year there wasn't, and it just it was luck of the draw.
0: Kind of interesting to think about what series that were close might have been different if they played those under different rules.
3: Yeah, so even even numbered years were DH years because um, yeah, because there was one in eighty with the with the Phillies with the Phillies Royals and
2: in, in eighty two again. When did they stop that? It was like 85, 86?
3: I 85. you know what? That's a great question. And not, unfortunately, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. I should you, but I don't.
2: What'd you say, Andrew? 80
3: 85 was the last one like that, and then 86
0: 86.
2: Went to the whole Gotcha. So um, Jay, we really we really enjoyed the book. Uh there's there's a lot of things we didn't get to. Um, you got stories in there about uh Hall of Famers of Jim Rice. Interesting story about Jim Rice, uh Joe Torre. There's a lot about him and his Braves team. Uh, Robin Yount apparently once uh, tried to punch his teammates for the sin of chanting MVP at him at, a, at yeah. a team party. So, um, I I don't know. I I think you got that story from Paul Molitor, or you 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 know you saw it from Paul Molitor. I, I don't know what the intention of that was to be, but to me, it just made Robin Yount kind of seem like a jerk. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if that was Molitor's point or not, but it, to, to me, that's how. It no, seemed I to think me. it
3: was just. I think he was trying to say how humble Yount mm-hmm. was. And that he, you know, it made him uncomfortable to be recognized in that way by his teammates. And he just wanted to go out and play. Mm-hmm. And more so than anything, he just wanted to play baseball. I mean, he was that guy was was just a baseball player. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was what he was concerned with. And he didn't want the attention. He just wanted to go out and play and win.
2: Before we let you go um, and and feel free to, to to not not answer this, but you mentioned um but potentially some research for a next book. Do you have an idea of what you'd want to do next?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm looking at 83, but there's a lot of moving parts. Um, you know, I mean, I'd have to, you know, I, and I'm very in the very preliminary stages of it. So it, it's, it, I would say, don't hold your breath. If you're, if you uh, <laughs> want to read a book about 1983, at least it's, you know, if, if one does come it's for me, it's not going to be for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but wow. I've, I'm, you know, I just started to look into it and I really, I really want to do more of a deep dive and really get into the nitty-gritty because I'm I'm fascinated by the minutiae of all mm. this stuff. And I'm and I'm fascinated by just going in and find I mean, one of the things for eighty three I learned there was a an Orioles game early in, in, in eighty three in April where it was the wind chill was, I think by the end of the game, the wind chills were in the single digits and the, the clubhouse manager for the, for the Orioles, the game was at Memorial stadium, drove a, um, a station wagon out and parked it in the bullpen so that the guys in the bullpen could sit in a station wagon with the engine running and the heat on so that they wouldn't have to sit in the cold bullpen. Um, So just, you know, those kinds of stories are just fascinating to me. And, And again, it speaks to, The difference in times, right? I mean, now guys, they've got heated bullpens and whatnot, but um, (laughs) you know, it was just, it was, I love, I love the anachronisms of it.
2: So the book is called uh, Suds series, baseball, beer wars, and the summer of 82. Our guest today has been the author Jay Daniel, and uh, we recommend the book and hope you all check it out. And Jay, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me guys. I really appreciate it.
2: And until, Thanks, next, until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports.
1: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month